Behold the kindness and severity of God. Those words from the book of Romans seem to stand in stark opposition to one another. How can someone be remarkably kind and remarkably severe at the same time? That is a good question for anyone exploring God. And the apparent opposition of those two traits is something any reader of the Bible finds compellingly dismantled again and again. This is a story about a God who does not choose sides, but is a side, the only side you want to be on, whatever the conflict and whatever your paltry reasons for a particular allegiance. It's a story about the severity and kindness of God and about one person who found herself changed forever by that complexity. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. They're talking in the streets. Everyone is. At first, it was hushed rumors passed from cellar to cellar in the marketplace, fueled weekly with the arrival of traveling merchants with fresh stories on their lips. But then, as the stories corroborated one another, they seemed less like rumors. Then came the refugees all of them arriving in Jericho, trembling, glad to find security behind its massive walls, all of them with a story to tell. The same story in the end, the story of a people without a home, a wandering people, a people on the move, camping in the wilderness en masse, following a mysterious cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. These people, the refugees said, had routed the armies of Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and only they and a few others had survived to tell the tale. What's more, they said, this enormous mass of nomads was looking to take even more territory in Canaan. Maybe, maybe the entire land. Eventually, the whispers grew louder, and the talk spilled out from behind cupped hands and the walls of lamplit rooms. It found its way into the daylight and onto the streets of Jericho. Neighbors asking neighbors, did you hear about how he freed them from slavery in Egypt? How he split the Red Sea? Children telling their friends, I heard the ground was dry as an ox skull in the desert as they walked across. Eventually, of course, the court officials. Your Majesty, we have to take this threat seriously. Word is the Israelites are within 20 miles of here, and we hear they may have their eyes on Jericho. Now, with some sort of attack seeming imminent, the entire city is on high alert. People are terrified. An invading army is one thing, an army so clearly aided by a profoundly powerful divine presence bearing down on your city. That's enough to fill you with dread. At least they have the walls. The sun slips behind the western horizon, rimming the hills in golden light. As night draws its cloak around Jericho, Rahab drags herself to work. 
Not many women in town have jobs outside of the work they do for their children and husband, but Rahab has a job, and Rahab does not have children or a husband. She wakes each day when many are contemplating an afternoon nap, and she begins her work just as the men of the city are leaving theirs. Rahab is a prostitute. Every night she trades her body for money. Every night she steals herself for what's to come, fortifying the walls between her experiences and her emotions. The walls between who she passes in the marketplace alongside their family and who comes to her under the cover of darkness. The walls protecting her from the disdainful glances, from feeling so used. The walls between what she does and who she is or who she wants to be. She's been building them, stone by stone, for a long time now. How long? History won't record for future generations how old Rahab is. Perhaps she's 40, having spent more than two decades in this business. Perhaps she's 16, forced into this work because of a family debt. Or perhaps she's 24, employed as a temple prostitute and paid handsomely for her sacred services. Whatever her origin story, whatever the exact circumstances of her current employ, this much seems clear. Rahab wants a different life. It's been hard, certainly, to hear the fearful murmurings about the Israelites and their God, the bleak predictions of certain defeat, the end of Jericho as they know it. But it's also been hard not to imagine with satisfaction the demise of the worst of her clients, the brutal treatment of those who've treated her brutally. It's been hard not to imagine what it would be like to start over, to be taken away as a prisoner of war, to a place far away where no one knows her, where no one knows what she's done. Well, not no one. She can't forget her mother and her father and her brothers and sisters. She'd love the chance to start over with them. And then there's the Israelite God, Yahweh, they say the Hebrews call him. He's honestly what's most intriguing to her of all. She's terrified of him. Instead of having power over crops or the sun or the sea, they say he has power over all of it, everything, that he created everything and everyone. They say he has the power to crush entire civilizations. She trembles at the thought. But then, anyone with that kind of power, who'd free an entire nation of slaves, who'd love people that an entire society despised and used, people on the margins like that. Suddenly there's a knock at the door. Rahab opens it to find two men who look out of place. And though they avoid talking for as long as possible, when they do open their mouths, their subtle accents are a red flag, at least to the astute Rahab. They ask for lodging, and Rahab studies their faces. Meanwhile, the king of Jericho still on edge because of the looming threat, is brought word by his security team. Look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Thankfully, they've also got intelligence on where the spies might be. The king immediately sends soldiers to the house of Rahab the prostitute with a warning 
wrapped in a command. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. Oh, those men, yes, they were here, she says. I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Go now. If you're quick, you can catch up with them, she says, surprised at how adept she's become at projecting certain emotions, completely at odds with what she's feeling inside. The soldiers don't waste a moment, turn on their heels, and charge out through Jericho's walls, racing east along the road to the Jordan, the enormous wooden gate shut behind them to secure the city. Back at her house, Rahab breathes an enormous sigh of relief and heads up the ladder to the roof. She strides over to the bundles of flax arranged neatly to dry in the sun, waiting to be spun into linen. Linen, the material chosen by God to be used as the screen at the entrance to the tabernacle. The whole screen marking that place of Yahweh's presence was linen, embroidered with scarlet cord. Up on the roof in the moonlight, Rahab pulls open the curtain of pre-linen, her stalks of flax, to reveal two faces that are very relieved to see her. The Israelite spies crawl out of the pile of flax, dust themselves off, and thank Rahab for hiding them. They know she didn't have to. They know she was smart enough to figure out who they were and what they were doing in her city. They know that from the moment she discovered them, they've been at her mercy. They know she could have turned them in. What they don't know is why she didn't. They're about to find out. I know, she says, that Yahweh has given you this land. They look at one another, then back to her. The terror of you has fallen on us, and everyone who lives in this land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. She looks out at the eastern horizon, as if she's imagining the smoldering ruins of those cities somewhere out there. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. And then... The Israelite men listen as these words spill effortlessly from the lips of this pagan woman prostitute. Everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. The spies glance again at one another, incredulous at such a, well, profession of faith by this consummate outsider. Now, Rahab continues, and her face is painted with emotion she cannot hide, too many emotions to mask, fresh fear and years-old shame, familiar despair and thrilling hope, stubborn ambition and intense desire. Please swear to me by Yahweh that you will show kindness to my family, because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them, and save us from death. 
silence. A dog barks in the distance. Rahab's usual clients wonder where she is. Joshua and the Israelite troops, hidden in an acacia grove 20 miles away, pray for the spies who haven't yet returned. Yahweh watches. We will give our lives for yours, the spies finally say. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when Yahweh gives us the land. The hairs on the back of Rahab's neck stand on end. Chills run down her arms to her fingertips. She leads them down into the house, into a window on the outside edge of the wall. Did I mention her house is built into the walls of Jericho? It is. She disappears for a moment and returns with a length of flax cord, its crimson color conspicuous even in the dim lamplight. Rahab moves quickly, tying off one end of the rope to a post in the room and tossing the other end out through the window. Go, she tells them, and head west first, out into the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return. Afterward, go on your way. The Israelites climb through the window and down the hall, their hands and feet touching stones and bricks that will soon be dismantled. They get to the ground and look up at Rahab leaning through the window. We will be free from this oath you made us swear, they say just loudly enough for her to hear them, unless when we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's family into your house. If anyone goes out of the doors of your house, his blood will be on his own head, and we will be innocent. And if you report our mission, we are free from the oath you made us swear. Let it be as you say, she replies, and watches them go. As soon as she can't see them anymore, she ties the scarlet cord to her window. As the long, dreary winter is just giving way to the light and warmth of spring, the citizens of Jericho do not come and go as they did just months ago. The city has been on lockdown for a while now. Extra troops conscripted, additional weapons manufactured, and the walls, of course, fortified. All to ensure that the wandering Israelites do not take this city. There doesn't seem to be any chance of that, though the way they're handling their invasion. You can't really even call it that, in fact. All the Israelites are doing is marching around the city. It's the strangest thing. They've done it every day for the last six days. March around one time, the priests, the soldiers, the strange golden box they carry everywhere they go, and everyone's silent, not a word from any of them. Just the sound of their ram's horn trumpets echoing off the city walls. Conquest by following a priest and making music. How ridiculous. Still, though, there's something unsettling about it. 
Rahab rises early on the seventh day to the sound of thousands of feet marching around the city again. This time they're at it early. Dawn is just breaking and she watches through the window as the people of Yahweh make the hour-long circuit around the city. She adjusts the scarlet cord to make sure it's tied securely and can easily be seen. But she notices, everyone in Jericho does, in fact, that something is different. The soldiers outside are not blowing the trumpets. They march in silence. And while the guards on the walls of Jericho look on, they notice the other thing that Rahab notices. The soldiers should have stopped. It's usually once around. Every day they march once around the city. But it's clear now they're not stopping. They're on their second time around. Third. Fourth. Fifth. In the eerie quiet, they soberly encircle the city again and again, wrapping themselves around the walls like a python, embracing its prey. Hours have passed since they began at dawn. A sixth circuit now. They're starting a seventh. Suddenly, at the end of the seventh loop, the familiar sound of the trumpets finally breaks the silence. Rahab's heart beats faster. After the shofars drop away, she hears a voice calling out to the soldiers of Israel. It's the voice of Joshua, their commander. She can't make out what he's saying to his troops, but she could swear it almost sounded like he said her name. Then the voices of the soldiers and the priests rise together into an enormous shout. The trumpets, too, sound again, breath filling the horns of the slain rams, music filling the air, and then a different sound. It's the low rumble, the unmistakable noise of rock shifting. The stones in Jericho's walls begin to tremble. And then several things happen at the same time. The mighty walls of Jericho crack, chunks of them falling away from one another. The brick ramparts are ripped apart like a garment torn in grief. The people of Jericho look on in horror from inside the city as they watch their defenses crumble around them. The Israelites scream at the top of their voices, Yahweh fulfilling his promise before their very eyes, their soldiers scrambling up the embankment at the foot of the dismantled walls, pouring into the city. And then, a horrific scene as the Hebrews act in obedience to Yahweh as agents of his judgment on the citizens of Jericho who've ignored and disobeyed him for generations. Jericho fights back, tries to kill as many Israelites as they can, but they don't stand a chance. They're not fighting against Israel. According to God's command, everything in the city is destroyed with the sword. Every man and woman, young and old, every ox, donkey, sheep. No one is safe. With one exception. In the midst of the chaos, Joshua finds the two spies who'd been its scouts. Go to the prostitute's house, he yells, and bring the woman out of there and all who are with her, just as you promised her. They take off at a sprint, 
dodging swords and screams and flames, jumping over scattered rubble and sprawled corpses, fully aware that Rahab's house was in the city wall, praying there not too late. Finally, they reach the place. Sliding to a halt, the two spies catch their breath as they marvel at a fully intact section of wall. Every stone, every brick standing in sharp relief to the surrounding wreckage, undisturbed, as if some invisible hand had covered it, sheltering it from destruction. They run up and bang on the door, panting and sweating and hoping for an answer. Inside, Rahab and her mother and her father and their servants and her brothers and sisters and her nieces and nephews are huddled in a corner, trying in vain not to listen to the horrific sounds outside. Suddenly, someone bangs on the door and every one of them freezes. Rahab looks back at her family, these people who told her she was crazy when she told them the omnipotent Israelite God was going to save her and all of them when he rained destruction down on Jericho. And they look back at her with tears in their eyes, knowing this is the moment they find out how crazy she is. This is the moment that might be their last moment. Rahab turns back, lifts the bar, and pulls open the door to find two faces that are very relieved to see her. Two faces she couldn't be more relieved to see. Years later, Rahab will remember that day with tears as she looks around at her life. She lives in Israel now, and no one knows her as the prostitute. She's just Rahab. There is only ever one man in her bed, her husband, an Israelite man named Salman. They have children. Their children have children. In a few generations, her great-grandson and his wife will have a little boy they named David. He'll be quick-witted and decisive, an excellent leader, and full of faith, just like his great-great-grandmother, Rahab. And every year, as the long, dreary winter gives way to the light and warmth of spring, when her adopted nation celebrates the Feast of Passover, when they commemorate that night in Egypt, the angel of death made his way from house to house, bringing destruction, but saving them when he saw the crimson stripe marking their homes. When they tell the story of how Yahweh dismantled their slavery, leading them away from masters who used and abused them. Every spring, when the people of God thank him for rescuing them and ushering them into a new home and giving them a new life. Rahab sings the songs of freedom just as loudly as anyone else.
Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you would like to share this podcast with a friend, I would love for you to do that. I'd also be thrilled if you'd subscribe and leave a quick review that'll help more people discover the show. And besides, I would love to hear from you. You can find out more, including why I created this podcast and what I'm hoping to accomplish with it at holyghoststories.org. Oh, and follow along on Instagram. Just search Holy Ghost Stories Podcast. Till next time.